Section 3 of the Fourteen Orations Against Marcus Antonius, called Philippics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Philippics by Marcus Tullius Cicero. The Third Philippic. The Argument. After the composition of the last speech, Octavius, considering that he had reason to be offended with Antonius, formed a plot for his assassination by means of some slaves, which, however, was discovered. In the meantime, Antonius began to declare more and more openly against the conspirators. He erected a statue in the forum to Caesar, with the inscription, To the most worthy defender of his country. Octavius at the same time was trying to win over the soldiers of his uncle Julius, and outbidding Antonius and all his promises to them, so that he soon collected a formidable army of veterans. But as he had no public office to give him any color for his conduct, he paid great court to the Republican Party, in hopes to get his proceedings authorized by the Senate, and he kept continually pressing Cicero to return to Rome and support him. Cicero, however, for some time kept aloof, suspecting partly his abilities, on account of his exceeding youth, and partly his sincerity in reconciling himself to his uncle's murderers. However, at last he returned, after expressly stipulating that Octavius should employ all his forces in defense of Brutus and his accomplices. Antonius left Rome about the end of September, in order to engage in his service four legions of Caesars, which were on their return from Macedonia. But when they arrived at Brundisium, three of them refused to follow him, on which he murdered all their centurions, the number of three hundred, who were all put to death in his lodgings, in the sight of himself and Fulvia, his wife, and then returned to Rome with the one legion that he had prevailed upon, while the other three legions declared as yet for neither party. On his arrival in Rome, he published very many violent edicts, and summoned the Senate to meet on the 24th of October. Then he adjourned it to the 28th, and a day or two before it met, he heard that two out of the three legions had declared for Octavius and encamped at Alba, and this news alarmed him so much that he abandoned his intention of proposing to the Senate a decree to declare Octavius a public enemy, and after distributing some provinces among his friends, he put on his military robes and left the city to take possession of Kisalpine Gaul, which had been assigned to him by a pretended law of the people against the will of the Senate. On the news of his departure, Cicero returned to Rome, where he arrived on the ninth of December. He immediately conferred with Panza, one of the consuls-elect, Hirtius's colleague was ill, as to the measures to be taken. He was again addressed with earnest solicitations by the friends of Octavius, who, to confirm his belief in his good intentions, allowed Casca, who had been one of the slayers of Caesar, and had himself given the first blow, to enter on his office as tribune of the people on the 10th of December. The new tribunes convoked the Senate for the 19th, on which occasion Cicero had attended to be absent, but receiving the day before the edict of Decimus Brutus, by which he forbade Antonius to enter his province. Immediately after the death of Caesar, he had been taken possession of Cisalpine Gaul, which had been conferred on him by Caesar, and declared that he would defend it against him by force and preserve it in his duty to the Senate. He thought it necessary to procure for Brutus a resolution of the Senate in his favor. He went down, therefore, very early, and, in a very full house, delivered the following speech. 
We have assembled at length, O conscript fathers, although later than the necessities of the republic required. But still we are assembled, a measure which I, indeed, have been every day demanding, insomuch as I saw that a nefarious war against our altars and our hearths, against our lives and our fortunes, was, I will not say being prepared, but being actually waged by a profligate and desperate man. People are waiting for the first of January, but Antonius is not waiting for that day, who is now attempting with an army to invade the province of Decimus Brutus, a most illustrious and excellent man. And when he has procured reinforcements and equipments there, he threatens that he will come to this city. What is the use then of waiting, or even of a delay for the very shortest time? For although the first of January is at hand, still a short time is a long time for people who are not prepared. For a day, or I should rather say an hour, often brings great disasters if no precautions are taken. And it is not usual to wait for a fixed day for holding a council, as it is for celebrating a festival. But if the first of January had fallen that day when Antonius first fled from the city, or if the people had not waited for it, we should by this time have no war at all. We should easily have crushed the audacity of that frantic man by the authority of the Senate and the unanimity of the Roman people. And now, indeed, I feel confident that the consuls-elect will do so as soon as they enter on their magistracy, for they are men of the highest courage, of the most consummate wisdom, and they will act in perfect harmony with each other. But my exhortations to rapid and instant action are prompted by a desire not merely for victory, but for speedy victory. For how long are we to trust to the prudence of an individual to repel so important, so cruel, so nefarious a war? Why is it not the public authority thrown into the scale as quickly as possible? Gaius Caesar, a young man, or I should rather say almost a boy, endowed with an incredible and godlike degree of wisdom and valor, at the time when the frenzy of Antonius was at its height, and when his cruel and mischievous return from Brindisium was an object of apprehension to all, while we neither desired him to do so, nor thought of such a measure, nor adventured even to wish it, because it did not seem practicable, collected a most trustworthy army from the invincible body of veteran soldiers, and has spent his own patrimony in doing so. Although I have not used the expression which I ought, for he has not spent it, he has invested it in the safety of the Republic. And although it is not possible to requite him with all the thanks to which he is entitled, still we ought to feel all the gratitude towards him which our minds are capable of conceiving. For who is so ignorant of the Republic as not to see that, if Marcus Antonius could have come with those forces which he had made sure that he should have, from Brundisium to Rome, as he threatened, there would have been no description of cruelty which he would not have practiced. A man who in the house of his entertainer at Brundisium ordered so many gallant men and virtuous citizens to be murdered, and whose wife's face was notoriously besprinkled with the blood of men dying at his and her feet. Who is there of us, or what good man is there at all, whom a man stained with this barbarity would ever have spared, especially as he was coming here much more angry with all virtuous men than he had been with those whom he massacred there? and from this calamity Caesar has delivered the Republic by his own individual prudence. And indeed there were no other means by which it could have been done. And if he had not been born in this Republic, we should, owing to the wickedness of Antonius, now have no Republic at all. For this is what I believe, 
This is my deliberate opinion, that if that one young man had not checked the violence and inhuman projects of that frantic man, the Republic would have been utterly destroyed. And to him we must, O conscript fathers, for this is the very first time met in such a condition that, owing to his good service, we are at liberty to say freely what we think and feel. We must, I say, this day give authority, so that he may be able to defend the Republic, not because that defense has been voluntarily undertaken by him, but also because it has been entrusted to him by us. Nor, since now, after a long interval, we are allowed to speak concerning the Republic, is it possible for us to be silent about the Martial Legion. For what single man has ever been braver, what single man has ever been more devoted to the Republic, than the whole of the Martial Legion? Which, as soon as it was decided that Marcus Antonius was an enemy of the Roman people, refused to be a companion in his insanity, deserted him though consul, which, in truth, it would not have done if it had considered him as consul, who, as it saw, was aiming at nothing, and preparing nothing, but the slaughter of the citizens and the destruction of the state. And that legion has encamped at Alba. What city could have been it selected, either more suitable for enabling it to act, or more faithful, or full of more gallant men, or of citizens more devoted to the Republic. The fourth legion, imitating the virtue of this legion, under the leadership of Lucius Ignatulelius, the quaestor, a most virtuous and intrepid citizen, has also acknowledged the authority and joined the army of Gaius Caesar. We, therefore, O conscript fathers, must take care that those things which this most illustrious young man, this most excellent of all men, has done of his own accord, and is still doing, be sanctioned by our authority, and the admirable unanimity of the veterans, those most brave men, and of the Martial, and of the Fourth Legion, in their zeal for the re-establishment of the Republic, be encouraged by our praise and commendation, and let us pledge ourselves this day that their advantage, and honors, and rewards shall be cared for by us as soon as the consuls-elect have entered on their magistracy. And the things which I have said about Caesar, and about his army, are indeed already well known to you, for by the admirable valor of Caesar, and by the firmness of the veteran soldiers, and by the admirable discernment of those legions which have followed our authority, and the liberty of the Roman people, and the valor of Caesar, Antonius has been repelled from his attempts upon our lives. But these things, as I have said, happened before, but this recent edict of Decimus Brutus, which has just been issued, can certainly not be passed over in silence." for he promises to preserve the province of Gaul in obedience to the Senate and people of Rome. O citizens, born for the Republic, mindful of the name he bears, imitator of his ancestors! Nor indeed was the acquisition of liberty so much an object of desire to our ancestors when Tarquinius was expelled, as now that Antonius is driven away, the preservation of it is to us. Those men had learnt to obey kings ever since the foundation of the city, but we, from the time when the kings were driven out, have forgotten how to be slaves, and that Tarquinius, whom our ancestors expelled, was not either considered or called cruel or impious, but only the proud. That vice which we could have borne in private individuals, our ancestors could not have endured even in a king. Lucius Brutus could not endure a proud king. Shall Decimus Brutus submit to the kingly power of a man who is wicked and impious? What atrocity did Arquinius ever commit equal to the innumerable acts of the sort which Antonius has done and is still doing? 
Again, the kings were used to consult the Senate, nor, as is the case when Antonius holds a Senate, were armed barbarians ever introduced into the, into the council of the king. The kings paid due regard to the auspices, which this man, though consul and augur, has neglected, not only by passing laws in opposition to the auspices, but also by making his colleague, whom he himself had appointed irregularly and had falsified the auspices in order to do so, joined in passing them. Indeed, what king was ever so preposterously impudent as to have all the profits and kindnesses and privileges of his kingdom on sale? But what immunity is there? What rights of citizenship? What rewards that this man has not sold to individuals and to cities and to entire provinces? We have never heard of anything base or sordid being imputed to Tarquinius. But at the house of this man, gold was constantly being weighed out in the spinning room, and money was being paid, and in one single house, every soul who had any interest in the business was selling the whole empire of the Roman people. We have never heard of any executions of Roman citizens by the orders of Tarquinius. But this man, both at Suisa, murdered the man who he had thrown into prison, and at Brundisium, massacred about three hundred most gallant men and most virtuous citizens. Lastly, Tarquinius was conducting a war in defense of the Roman people at the very time when he was expelled. Antonius was leading an army against the Roman people at the very time when, being abandoned by the legions, he cowered at the name of Caesar and had his army, and neglecting the regular sacrifices, he offered up before daylight vows which he could never mean to perform and at this very moment he is endeavoring to invade a province of the Roman people. The Roman people, therefore, has already received and is still looking for greater services at the hands of Decimus Brutus than our ancestors received from Lucius Brutus, the founder of this race and name which we ought to be so anxious to preserve. But while all slavery is miserable, to be a slave to a man who is profligate, unchaste, effeminate, never, not even while in fear, sober, is surely intolerable. He then, who keeps this man out of Gaul, especially by his own private authority, judges, and judges most truly, that he is not consul at all. We must take care, therefore, O conscript fathers, to sanction the private decision of Decimus Brutus by public authority. Nor, indeed, ought you to have thought Marcus Antonius consul at any time since the Lupercalia, for on the day when he, in the sight of the Roman people, harangued the mob, naked, perfumed, and drunk, and labored, moreover, to put a crown on the head of his colleague, on that day he abdicated not only the consulship, but also his own freedom. At all events, he himself must at once have become a slave, if Caesar had been willing to accept from him that ensign of royalty. Can I then think him a consul? Can I then think him a Roman citizen? Can I think him a freedman? Can I even think him a man who, on that shameful and wicked day, showed that he was willing to endure while Caesar lived and what he was anxious to obtain himself after he was dead? Nor is it possible to pass over in silence the virtue and firmness and dignity of the province of Gaul. For that is the flower of Italy, that is the bulwark of the empire of the Roman people. That is the chief ornament of our dignity, but so perfect is the unanimity of the municipal towns and colonies of the province of Gaul, that all men in that district appear to have been united to defend the authority of this order and the majesty of the Roman people.
Wherefore, O tribunes of the people, although you have not actually brought any other business before us beyond the question of protection, in order that the consuls may be able to hold the Senate with safety on the 1st of July, still you appear to me to have acted with great wisdom and great prudence in giving an opportunity of debating the general circumstances of the Republic. For when you decided that the Senate could not be held with safety without some protection or other, you at the same time asserted by that decision that the wickedness and audacity of Antonius was still continuing its practices within our walls. Wherefore, I will embrace every consideration in my opinion which I am now going to deliver, a course to which you, I feel sure, have no objection, in order that authority may be conferred by us on admirable generals, and that hope of reward may be held out by us to gallant soldiers, and that a formal decision may be come to not by words only, but also by actions, that Antonius is not only not a consul, but is even an enemy. For if he be consul, then the legions which have deserted the consuls deserve beating to death. Caesar is wicked, Brutus is impious, since they of their own heads have lived an army against the consul. But if new honors are to be sought out for soldiers on account of, of their divine and immortal merits, and if it is quite impossible to show gratitude enough to the generals, who is there that must not think that man a public enemy, whose conduct is such that those who are in arms against him are considered the saviors of the Republic? Again, how insulting he is with his edicts! How ignorant! How like a barbarian! In the first place, how he has heaped abuse on Caesar in terms drawn from his recollection of his own debauchery and profligacy. For where can we find anyone who is chaster than this young man, who is more modest? Where have we among our youth a more illustrious example of the old-fashioned strictness? Who, on the other hand, is more profligate than the man who abuses him? He reproaches the son of Gaius Caesar with his want of noble blood while even his own natural father, if he had been alive, would have been made consul. His mother is a woman of Arecia. You might suppose he was saying a woman of Tralles, or of Ephesus. Just see how we all, who have come from the municipal towns, that is to say, absolutely all of us, are looked down upon, for how few of us are there who do not come from those towns. And what municipal town is there, in which he does not despise, who looks with such contempt on Arecia? a town most ancient as to its antiquity, if we regard its rights, united with us by treaty, if we regard its vicinity, almost close to us, if we regard the high character of its inhabitants, most honorable. It is from Arecia that we have received the Vulconian and Atinian laws. From Arecia have come many of those magistrates who have filled our curile chairs, both in our father's recollection and in our own. From Arecia have sprung many of the best and bravest of the Roman knights. But if you disapprove of a wife from Arecia, why do you approve of one from Tusculum? Although the father of this most virtuous and excellent woman, Marcus Atius Balbus, the man of the highest character, was a man of the praetorian rank, but the father of your own wife, a good woman at all events, a rich one, a fellow of the name of Bambalio, who was a man of no account of all. Nothing could be lower than he was, a fellow who got his surname as a sort of insult, derived from the hesitation of his speech and the stolidity of his understanding. Oh, but your grandfather was nobly born. Yes, he was that Tuditanus, who used to put on a cloak and buskins, and then go and scatter money from the rostra among the people. 
I wish he had bequeathed his contempt of money to his descendants. You have, indeed, a most glorious nobility of family. But how does it happen that the son of a woman of Arikia appears to you to be ignoble, when you are accustomed to boast of a descent on the mother's side which is precisely the same? Besides, what insanity is it for that man to say anything about the want of noble birth and men's wives, when his father married Numitoria of Fregelli, the daughter of a traitor, and when he himself has begotten children of the daughter of a freedman? However, those illustrious men, Lucius Philippus, who has a wife who came from Arecia, and Gaius Marcellus, whose wife is the daughter of a Arecian, may look to this, and I am quite sure that they have no regrets on the score of the dignity of those admirable women. Moreover, Antonius proceeds to name Quintus Cicero, my brother's son, in his edict, and who is so mad as to not perceive that the way in which he names him is a panegyric on him? For what could happen more desirable for this young man than to be known by everyone to be the partner of Caesar's counsels, and the enemy of the frenzy of Antonius? But this gladiator has dared to put in writing that he has designed the murder of his father and of his uncle. Oh, the marvelous impudence and audacity and temerity of such an assertion, to dare to put in writing against me that young man, whom I and my brother, on account of his amiable matters and pure character and splendid abilities, vie with each other in loving, and to whom we incessantly devote our eyes and ears and affections. As to me, he does not know whether he is injuring or praising me in those same edicts, when he threatens the most virtuous citizens with the same punishment which I inflicted on the most wicked and infamous of men. He seems to praise me as if he were desirous of copying me, but when he brings up again the memory of that most illustrious exploit, then he thinks that he is exciting some odium against me in the breasts of men like himself. But what is it that he has done himself? When he had published all these edicts, he issued another, that the Senate was to meet in a full house on the 24th of November. On that day he himself was not present. But what were the terms of his edict? These, I believe, were the exact words of the end of it. If anyone fails to attend, all men will be at liberty to think him the adviser of my destruction and of most ruinous counsels. What are ruinous counsels? Those which relate to the recovery of the liberty of the Roman people? Of those counsels I confess that I have been, and still am, an adviser and prompter to Caesar. Though he did not stand in need of anyone's advice, but still I spurned on the willing horse, as it is said, for what good man would not have advised putting you to death, when on your death depended the safety and life of every good man, and the liberty and dignity of the Roman people? But when he had summoned all of us by so severe an edict, why did he not attend himself? Do you suppose that he was detained by any melancholy or important occasion? He was detained drinking and feasting, if indeed it deserves to be called a feast, and not rather gluttony. He neglected to attend on that day, mentioned in his edict, and he adjourned the meeting to the twenty-eighth. He then summoned us to attend in the capital, and at that temple he did arrive himself, coming up through some mine left by the Gauls. Men came, having been summoned, some of them indeed men of high distinction, but forgetful of what was due to their dignity. For the day was such, the report of the object of the meeting such, such too the man who had convened the Senate, that it was discreditable for a senator to feel no fear for the result. 
Yet to those men who had assembled, he did not dare to say a single word about Caesar, though he had made up his mind to submit a motion respecting him to the Senate. There was a man of consular rank who brought a resolution ready to be drawn up. Is it not now admitting that he is himself an enemy, when he does not dare to make a motion respecting a man who is leading an army against him while he is consul? For it is perfectly plain that one of the two must be an enemy, nor is it possible to come to a different decision respecting adverse generals. If then Gaius Caesar be an enemy, why does the consul submit no motion to the Senate? If he does not deserve to be branded by the Senate, then what can the consul say, who, by his silence respecting him, has confessed that he himself is an enemy? In his edicts he styles him Spartacus, while in the Senate he does not venture to call him even a bad citizen. But in the most melancholy circumstances, what mirth does he not provoke? I have committed to memory some short phrases of one edict, which he appears to think particularly clever, but I have not as yet found any one who has understood what he intended by them. That is no insult which a worthy man does. Now, in the first place, what is the meaning of worthy? For there are many men worthy of punishment, as he himself is. Does he mean what a man does, who is invested with any dignity? If so, what insult can be greater? Moreover, what is the meaning of doing an insult? Whoever uses such an expression? Then comes nor any fear which an enemy threatens. What, then, is fear usually threatened by a friend? Then come many similar sentences. Is it not better to be dumb than to say what no one can understand? Now see why his tutor, exchanging pleas for plows, has given to him in the public domain of the Roman people two thousand acres of land in the Leotine district, exempt from all taxes, for making a stupid man still stupider at the public expense. However, perhaps these are trifling matters. I ask now why, all on a sudden, he became so gentle to the Senate, after having been so fierce in his edicts. For what was the object of threatening Lucius Cassius, a most fearless tribune of the people, and a most virtuous and loyal citizen with death if he came to the Senate, of expelling Decimus Caiophilenus, a man thoroughly attached to the Republic, from the Senate by violence and threats of death, of interdicting Titus Canutius, by whom he had been repeatedly and deservedly harassed by most legitimate attacks, not only from the temple itself, but from all approach to it. What was the resolution of the Senate, which he was afraid that they would stop by the interposition of their veto? That, I suppose, respecting the supplication in honor of Marcus Lepidus, a most illustrious man, Certainly there was a great danger of our hindering an ordinary compliment to a man on whom we were every day thinking of conferring some extraordinary honor. However, that he might not appear to have no reason at all for ordering the Senate to meet, he was on the point of bringing forward some motion about the Republic, when the news of the Fourth Legion came, which entirely bewildered him, and hastening to flee away, he took a division on the resolution for decreeing this supplication though such a proceeding had never been heard of before. But what a setting out was his after this! What a journey when he was in the robe as a general! How did he shun all eyes, and the light of day, and the city, and the forum! How miserable was his flight! How shameful! How infamous! Splendid, too, were the decrees of the Senate passed on the evening of that very day. Very religiously solemn was the allotment of the provinces, and heavenly indeed was the opportunity 
when everyone got exactly what he thought most desirable. You are acting admirably, therefore, O tribunes of the people, in bringing forward a motion about the protection of the Senate and councils. And most deservedly are we all bound to feel and to prove you the greatest gratitude for your conduct. For how can we be free from fear and danger, while menaced by covetousness and audacity? And as for that ruined and desperate man, what more hostile decision can be passed upon him than has already been passed by his own friends? his most intimate friend, a man connected with me too, Lucius Lentulus, and also Publius Naso, a man destitute of covetousness, have shown that they think that they have no provinces assigned to them, and that the allotments of Antonius are invalid. Lucius Philippus, a man thoroughly worthy of his father, and grandfather, and ancestors, has done the same. The same is the opinion of Marcus Tyrannius, a man of the greatest integrity and purity of life. The same is the conduct of Publius Opius, and those very men who, influenced by their friendship for Marcus Antonius, have attributed to him more power than they would perhaps really approve of. Marcus Piso, my own connection, a most admirable man and virtuous citizen, and Marcus Vahilius, a man of equal respectability, have both declared that they would obey the authority of the Senate. Why should I speak of Lucius Cinna, whose extraordinary integrity, proved under many trying circumstances, makes the glory of his present admirable conduct less remarkable. He has altogether disregarded the province assigned to him, and so has Cassius Cestius, a man of great and firm mind. Who are there left, then, to be delighted with this heaven-sent allotment? Lucius Antonius and Marcus Antonius. Oh, <laughs> happy pair, for there is nothing that they have wished for more. Gaius Antonius has Macedonia. Happy too is he, for he is constantly talking about this province. Gaius Calvisius has Africa. Nothing could be more fortunate, for he has not only just departed from Africa, and, as if he had divined that he should return, has left two lieutenants at Utica. Then Marcus Iccius has Sicily, and Quintus Cassius Spain. I do not know what to suspect. I fancy the lots which assign these two provinces were not quite so carefully attended to by the gods. O oh, Gaius Caesar, I am speaking of the young man, what safety have you brought to the Republic? How unforeseen has it been? How sudden? For if he did these things when flying, what would he have done when he was pursuing? In truth, he had said in a harangue that he would be the guardian of the city, and that he would keep his army at the gates of the city until the first of May. What a fine guardian, as the proverb goes, is the wolf of the sheep. Would Antonius have been the guardian of the city, or its plunderer or destroyer? He said, too, that he would come into the city and go out as he pleased. What more need I say? Did he not say, in the hearing of all the people, while sitting in front of the temple of Castor, that no one should remain alive but the conqueror? On this day, O conscript fathers, for the first time, after a long interval, do we plant our foot and take possession of liberty, liberty of which, as long as I could be, I was not the only defender, but even the savior. But when I could not do so, I rested, and I bore the misfortunes and misery of that period without abjectness, and not without some dignity. But as for this foul monster, who could endure him? And how could anyone endure him? What is there in Antonius except lust, and cruelty, and wantonness, and audacity? Of these materials he is wholly made up. There is in him nothing ingenuous, 
nothing moderate, nothing modest, nothing virtuous. Wherefore, since the matter has come to such a crisis that the question is whether he is to make atonement to the Republic for his crimes, or are we to become slaves, let us at last, I beseech you, by the immortal gods, O conscript fathers, adopt our father's courage and our father's virtue, so as either to recover the liberty belonging to the Roman name and race, or else to prefer death to slavery. We have borne and endured many things which ought not to be endured in a free city, some of us out of a hope of recovering our freedom, some from too great a fondness for life. But if we have submitted to those things which necessity and a sort of force which may seem almost to have been put on us by destiny have compelled us to endure, though, in point of fact, have we not endured them? Are we also to bear with the most shameful and inhuman tyranny of this profligate robber? What will he do in his passion, if ever he has the power, who, when he was not able to show his anger against any one, has been the enemy of all good men? What will he not dare to do when victorious, who, without having gained any victory, has committed such crimes as those since the death of Caesar, has emptied his well-filled house, has pillaged his gardens, has transferred to his own mansion all their ornaments, has sought to make his death a pretext for slaughter and conflagration, who, while he has carried two or three resolutions of the Senate, which have been advantageous to the Republic, has made everything else subservient to his own acquisition of gain and plunder, who has put up exemptions and annuities to sale, who has released cities from obligations, who has removed whole provinces from subjugation to the Roman Empire, who has restored exiles, who has passed forged laws in the name of Caesar, and has continued to forge decrees engraved on brass and fixed up in the capital, and has set up in his own house a domestic market for all things of that sort. Who has imposed laws on the Roman people, and who, with armed troops and guards, has excluded both the people and the magistrates from the forum? Who has filled the Senate with armed men, and has introduced armed men into the Temple of Concord, when he was holding a senate there, who ran down to Brundisium to meet the legions, and then murdered all the centurions in them who were well affected to the republic, who endeavored to come to Rome with his army to accomplish our massacre and the utter destruction of the city. And he, now that he has been prevented from succeeding in this attempt by the wisdom and forces of Caesar, and the unanimity of the veterans and valor of the legions, even now that his fortunes are desperate, does not diminish his audacity, nor, mad as he is, does he cease proceeding into his headlong career of fury. He is leading his mutilated army into Gaul, with one legion, and that too wavering in its fidelity to him, and he is waiting for his brother Lucius, as he cannot find any one more nearly like himself than him. But now what slaughter is this man, who has become a captain instead of a matador, a general instead of a gladiator, making? Wherever he sets his foot, he destroys stores, he slays the flocks and herds, and the, all the cattle, wherever he finds them, his soldiers revel in their spoil, and he himself, in order to imitate his brother, drowns himself in wine. Fields are laid waste, villas are plundered, matrons, virgins, well-born boys are carried off and given up to the soldiery, and Marcus Antonius has done exactly the same wherever he has led his army. Will you open your gates to these most infamous brothers? Will you ever admit them into the city? Will you not rather, now that the opportunity is offered to you, now that you have generals ready, 
and the minds of the soldiers eager for the service, and all the Roman people, unanimous, and all Italy, excited with the desire to recover its liberty, will you not, I say, avail yourself to the kindness of the immortal gods? You will never have an opportunity if you neglect this one. He will be hemmed in in the rear, in the front, and in the flank, if he once enters Gaul. Nor will he be attacked by arms alone, but by our decrees also. Mighty is the authority, mighty is the name of the Senate, when all its members are inspired by the one and the same resolution. Do you not see how the forum is crowded? How the Roman people is on tiptoe with the hope of recovering its liberty, which now, beholding us, after a long interval, meeting here in numbers, hopes too that we are also met in freedom. It was in expectation of this day that I avoided the wicked army of Marcus Antonius, at a time when he, while inveighing against me, was not aware for what an occasion I was reserving myself and my strength. If at that time I had chosen to reply to him, while he was seeking to begin the massacre with me, I should not now be able to consult the welfare of the Republic. But now that I have had this opportunity, I will never, O conscript fathers, neither by day nor by night, cease considering what ought to be thought concerning the liberty of the Roman people, and concerning your dignity. And whatever ought to be planned or done, I not only will never shrink from, but I will offer myself for, and beg to have entrusted to me. This is what I did before, while it was in my power. When it was no longer in my power to do so, I did nothing. But now, it is not only in my power, but it is absolutely necessary for me, unless we prefer being slaves, to fighting with all of our strength and courage to avoid being slaves. The immortal gods have given us these protectors. Caesar for the city, Brutus for Gaul. For if he had been able to oppress the city, we must have become slaves at once. If he had been able to get possession of Gaul, then it would not have been long before every good man must have perished, and all the rest have been enslaved. Now then, that this opportunity is afforded to you, O conscript fathers, I entreat you in the name of the immortal gods, seize upon it, and recollect at last that you are the chief men of the most honorable council on the face of the earth. Give a token to the Roman people that your wisdom shall not fail the Republic, since that too professes that its valor shall never desert it either. There is no need for my warning you. There is no one so foolish as to not perceive that if we go to sleep over this opportunity, we shall have to endure a tyranny, which will not only be cruel and haughty, but also ignominious and flagitious. You know the insolence of Antonius. You know his friends. You know his whole household. To be slaves to lustful, wanton, debauched, profligate, drunken gamblers is the extremity of misery combined with the extremity of infamy. And if now, but may the immortal gods avert the omen, that worst of fates shall befall the Republic, then, as brave gladiators take care to perish with honor, let us too, who are the chief men of all the countries and all the nations, take care to fall with dignity rather than to live as slaves with ignominy. There is nothing more detestable than disgrace, nothing more shameful than slavery. We have been born to glory and to liberty. Let us either preserve them or die with dignity. Too long have we concealed what we have felt. Now at length it is revealed. Every one has plainly shown what are his feelings to both sides and what are his inclinations. There are impious citizens, measured by the love I bear my country, too many, but in proportion to the multitude of well-affected ones, very few. 
and the immortal gods have given the Republic an incredible opportunity and a chance for destroying them. For, in addition to the defenses which we already have, there will soon be added consuls of consummate prudence and virtue and concord, who have already deliberated and pondered for many months on the freedom of the Roman people. With these men for our advisers and leaders, with the gods assisting us, with ourselves using all vigilance and taking great precautions for the future, and with the Roman people acting with unanimity, we shall indeed be free in a short time, and the recollection of our present slavery will make liberty sweeter. Moved by these considerations, since the tribune of the people had brought forth a motion to ensure that the Senate shall be able to meet in safety on the 1st of January, and that we may be able to deliver our sentiments on the general welfare of the state with freedom, I give my note that Gaius Pansa and Aulus Hirtius, the consuls-elect, do take care that the Senate be enabled to meet in safety on the 1st of January, and, as an edict has been published by Decimus Brutus, Imperator and Consul-elect, I vote that the Senate thinks that Decimus Brutus, Imperator and Consul, deserves excellently well of the Republic, insomuch as he is upholding the authority of the Senate, and freedom, and empire of the Roman people, and he is also retaining the province of Gallia Quiterior, a province full of the most virtuous and brave men, and of citizens most devoted to the Republic and his army. In obedience to the Senate, I vote that the Senate judges that he, and his army, and the municipalities and colonies of the province of Gaul, have acted and are acting properly, and regularly, and in a manner advantageous to the Republic. And the Senate thinks that it will be for the general interest of the Republic that the provinces which are at present occupied by Decimus Brutus and Lucius Plancus, both imperators and consuls-elect, and also by the officers who are in command of the provinces, shall continue to be held by them in accordance with the provisions of the Julian law, till each of these officers has a successor appointed by a resolution of the Senate, and they shall take care to maintain those provinces and armies in obedience to the Senate and people of Rome, and as a defense to the Republic. And since, by the exertions and valor and wisdom of Gaius Caesar, and by the admirable unanimity of the veteran soldiers, who, obeying his authority, have been and are a protection to the Republic, the Roman people has been defended, and is at the present time being defended, from the most serious dangers. And as the Martial Legion has encamped at Alba, in a municipal town of the greatest loyalty and courage, and has devoted itself to the support and authority of the Senate, and of the freedom of the Roman people, and as the Fourth Legion, behaving with equal wisdom, and with the same virtue, under the command of Lucius Ignatuelius, the quaestor, an illustrious citizen, has defended and is still defending the authority of the Senate and freedom of the Roman people. I give my vote that it is and shall be an object of anxious care to the Senate to pay due honor and to show due gratitude to them for their exceeding services to the Republic, and that the Senators hereby orders that when Gaius Pansa and Aulus Hirtius, the consuls-elect, have entered on their office, they take the earliest opportunity of consulting this body on these manners, as shall see to them expedient for the Republic, and worthy of their own integrity and loyalty. End of the Third Philippic